Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. The first thing that a lot of people forget is that you actually have something that people would pay for. So how do you find the idea you love? If I've been working in a cubicle for 15 years... Mm -hmm. And you say, but with me, I don't really know what skills I have that people are willing to pay for. I'm going to tell you. So number one, I want you to ask yourself, just get a piece of paper out right now or pull out your phone. What do you already pay for? What do you notice about that? The first thing you notice is there are lots of different reasons you pay. People want to take their money and use it to fuel a rich life. Let me tell you something. The single router model just doesn't work anymore for our increasingly high bandwidth world. What you need is a distributed system. Bear with me. Eero, E-E-R-O, has the power to seamlessly blanket your home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi. Simply download the Eero app on your iOS or Android devices, and you can manage your network right from the palm of your hand. I'll tell you why I like using Eero versus traditional Wi-Fi. It's all about coverage. I can't risk having spotty internet service. If I'm doing an interview via Skype or just researching for a guest who's coming on the podcast, I need a router I can count on. For free overnight shipping, visit Eero.com, select overnight as the shipping option, and enter James at checkout. Welcome HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. I've tried a bunch of different food delivery services and really feel HelloFresh is the best choice for me. HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. For $30 off on your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter James Altucher 30 when you subscribe. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, Simple recipes you'll love to cook. Get cooking. I am so happy. One of my good friends and a good friend of the podcast, Ramit Sethi. How many times have you been on the podcast? I feel like it's three or four times. I think so. It's great to be back. Good to be good to have you here once again. You know, I have I feel like I have two types of guests. There's the guests where I spend three years trying to get them on the podcast. And then when they're on, I'm so happy, but I'm really nervous. And and those te- those podcasts tend to be pretty good. 
and I like them, whatever. But then I have like my friends who are super knowledgeable, who have super value, and we already have that rapport. And always the commentary I get afterwards is that these are the best podcasts because we've got the rapport and then we just go straight into the knowledge and we know what each other delivers and we can just get to it. I love it. We can just sit here and tell jokes all day. Yeah, we, we could do that too. <laughs> When are you going to do stand-up comedy? I'm nervous, man. I, I see what you're doing. And I saw you, I saw the thing you posted on Facebook where you went on a subway car and did it. And I was like shaking. That is so scary But to But me. it reminds me of the type of thing you challenge your, um, your own customers and your own clients to do, yeah. which is hit that edge of that comfort zone. Because you're never going to... You're never. You're going to have these dreams in the cubicle or commuting or whatever. That's why people come to you. You're going to have these dreams, but you don't know how to take that leap from dream to reality. And the reason what, that big moat between dream and reality is that discomfort zone. You're going to do something you've never done before, something that you love, but you don't necessarily have the skill set for yet, and you have to jump into that moat. I totally agree. I, th I love the way you put it, edge, because I do think that if you are not on at least a couple of edges at any given time, then it's likely you're probably not pushing hard enough. But I also think that there is a time and a place to know when you're ready to get on that edge. So for example, there are certain things that everybody tells me I should do. I just don't care about them. Like meditation. Everybody's like, Ramit, you need to meditate. Everybody meditates. I love it. I'm sure it's great for a lot of people. I'm sure when I'm older and more spiritual, I will do it. But I have zero interest in it. And I'm not going to do it. Well, I don't and, do it. And I don't blame you. And actually, this is a tangent we did totally. We, just so everybody knows, you know, Ramit and I have known each other forever. Uh, we were in a poker game a, a, a few weeks ago. I have a story for you about that poker <laughs> game, actually, after what happened afterwards. And, but... Um, Right before this podcast, we came up with a list of things to to talk about. I've read your your book. First, let me just say your book, your brand new book is called Your Move, The Underdog's Guide to Building Your Business. It's your first book since like 10 years ago, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, which was a New York Times bestseller. I think this book is even better. I think it's a must read. We're going to dive right into this book in a little bit. Uh, it's, it's the step-by-step -step guide to really... I think making money and making building wealth in today's day and age. I think there's two ways to do it. There's you could be an angel investor and piggyback on the people building wealth, or you could start your own business and you and the type of business you recommend people starting is very straightforward, very simple. Anyone can do it. Anyone can make a lot of money relatively quickly, like let's say in less than five years. Your book is step by step how to do it. I love it. We'll talk about it. But I want to um, talk about meditation for a second. So I've been on and off meditating since I was about 12 years old. Really? Yes. And I started at 12 because I, I thought mistakenly I could project my consciousness out of my body through meditation and see girls undressing. <laughs> so I could fly around my neighborhood. Okay, this makes perfect sense. <laughs> I could fly around my neighborhood as a ghost. And, you know, that's how it's like in the in the books it's described. I would read all these pop psychic books and like, oh, okay, I'm going to I'm going to do this, this, this and I'm going to project out of my body and then I can see whatever I want. And so but what ended up happening is these what they these books are like a backdoor into meditation. The techniques they give are all kind of classic meditation techniques. And I slowly realized that. And then I got into uh, Buddhism and Taoism and Zen. And then I became a hardcore meditator for a while. I would go on like two-week 
silent meditation sessions. And I did this for decades. And when I was most stressed, I would, I would meditate. But I will tell you, 99% of people, all the people recommending to you, I, I will bet you, like, have I ever recommended to you to meditate? No. Of course not. Because <laughs> you know it doesn't make sense for me. Right. And also, it's personal. Yeah. So, so, so everybody kind of finds it their own way. Like, obviously, I'm not trying to do it now. But first off, I don't do it uh, every day anymore. I hardly ever do it. Um, because most people don't have a, most people meditate every day and have no clue what they're doing. And, and after doing it for 37 years, I will tell you they have no clue. Not that I'm going to ever teach a lecture on it, but I will say people say meditation is a practice, but they sort of forget that the word practice means practice. Right, right. <laughs> and it's, it's not that you're meditating for a half hour a day so that you reach this fake sense of enlightenment. There's no such thing as enlightenment. I have never met anybody from the Dalai Lama on down who's hit this, this mysterious comic book phase in their mind called enlightenment where now they have powers to like lift things and appear on different <laughs> parts of the world. There's no such thing. But it's practice for the other 23 hours a day where if you get stressed or if you start thinking, boy, my boss is an idiot. It, it, meditation is really practice for stopping those kind of negative lines of thought and saying, oh, that's that's what I was practicing for was now I can use my thoughts more efficiently. I'm not going to think that way. I'm going to think of something more uh, efficient for myself. Yeah. And that's all Buddha really meant either. Buddha was a total atheist. He never mentioned God in any of his writings. His whole thing was, is that suffering happens. You're always going to have suffering, but the, you can stop it by just recognizing that it comes up in your brain and switching focus. And the meditation is just practice for rec that recognition. I think it's great. I think I'm not a critic of meditation per se, but I really like what you said. It's a practice. And it's also one method to get to where you want to go. What Only one method. There's so many. What I internally chafe at is when you start to see these fads kind of coming across society and then you feel that if I'm not doing that, I'm missing out. And it's everything from food, you know, right now in New York, avocado toast and poke, super oh hot. Oh my God, avocado toast. Let, let's take a piece of bread, toast it in a toaster. Put it in Olita and sell it for $22. And, yeah, smear like the tiniest bit of avocado on it. Yeah, $22. You, you, it's, it's insane. You should read my rant about avocado post. Just Google it. It's I got really mad one night and just oh. went insane. So, Wait, hold on a second. Ivan, the audio engineer. Where is my pad and notes? I got... Are you going to write this down? Yeah. Google Ramit Sethi avocado toast. No, because maybe I'm going to include this in my stand-up act. I'll just steal directly from you, whatever you say, because <laughs> you're always funny in your posts. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Ivan. So then, so then you hear everybody talking. Now it's morning routines and meditation. And I think there's value in that. But I also think that you don't have to do what everyone else is telling you. So like I wake up, I do everything wrong. I wake up, the first thing I do, I roll over, get my phone out, start looking at Instagram, Twitter. Like everything you're not supposed to do, I do that. Oh my God, I love the anti-morning ritual. You just gave me another post. But here's topic. the thing. Like how do you still stay focused and successful if you're doing everything wrong? Well, the answer is most of your success, most of your focus, it doesn't matter if you're rolling over and you're, meditating for five minutes or you're looking at Instagram. What matters is all the systems, all the habits you've put in place before that morning ever came around. So a successful morning is like 80% determined the day before. 
Do you have your calendar? Do you know when what you're doing? When did you go to sleep? When did you go to sleep? That is number one. It's super important. In fact, I've only recently started to really focus on my sleep and re- set sleep alarms. Be as rigorous at night as I am in the morning. So you wake up, you feel good. Instead of feeling like grumpy, you're actually smiling. You get up. Some people get right to work. I take like an hour and a half, almost two hours in the morning. I'm really leisurely. And then by the time I get down to work, I know exactly what to do. I have the links like perfectly aligned. They're all there. That to me is more important than, you know, five minutes of this or don't do that. I'd rather find what works for me. And I just chafe when people tell me you need to do X. Maybe I don't need to. Oh my God. There's so many things I want to unpack in that. Just the idea that there's all these books that tell you, oh, you know, meditate for an hour, uh, then do this for an hour in the morning and wake up at X times. You have time to do these things. There's this whole genre of business self-development. I don't know when it started. I feel like, I feel, I'm going to, I'm going to take a little credit and I feel like I kind of helped start it, but you did too. You did too a little bit. Yeah. You're nicer than I am. (laughs) Um, and I feel there are so many bad business development books out there that really provide a disservice to people who want to start businesses. Because they forget about one thing. They, they love talking about vulnerability. They love talking about your daily practice and you know drinking jasmine tea. They only forget about one thing, actually getting good. Right. So why is that? Because it's way harder to talk about becoming excellent. It's way harder to talk about picking up the phone and talking to customers. It's way harder to talk about resilience and what happens when your first product launch fails or you build, spend a year building something and nobody wants it. It's much easier to say, um, light that uh, candle and uh, think about positive things. Now, yeah, I'm not the, saying don't do, do, do the, that. Yeah, do the to-do list. Like everybody's yeah. got a specific kind of to-do list. You don't list. need a to-do list. You need a calendar. Get Put it on your calendar and then move on. Yeah, no, and I feel like this whole business self-development uh, or I don't know how, what what kind of genre you call it, this business personal development genre which combines self-help with business help is just a scam. Man, th- 100%. It, well, I'll tell you this. I don't like to associate myself with like internet marketers. You'll never see me in a picture with a bunch of internet marketers. You'll never see me at an internet marketing conference. No, I, I, you're right. I don't. And I've decided, I, I've been a lot of times the keynote speaker at these things and I've decided I'm not going to anymore. I think the people you surround yourself with, like we've all heard the five people, yeah. you know, the average, but people don't really understand how important that is. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a friend of mine who um, was thinking about, like she and her husband have been married quite a few years and they don't have kids. They're in their mid-30s and they're thinking, yeah, should we, should we not? They're very ambivalent. And uh, one day they met other friends of mine who are parents and they were just talking about it. And they said, you know, uh, we're thinking about having kids, maybe not. You know, we're 36, something like that. And these friends of mine said, oh my God, I love being a mom. I love it. And they just talked about all these things they love about parenting and how fun it is. And they're like, yeah, it's tough sometimes, but we love it. And my friend was just stunned. And she said, she said, you know what? You're the first person I've ever met who actually talked about why they like being parents. She said, every single other person I talk to, all they do is complain about how hard it is. And after that, about a month later, she came to me and she said, we're thinking about having kids. So think about that. She went 36 years, totally ambivalent, 
This is literally life or death. And she never met one person who was actually positive and encouraged her and said- I feel like a lot of people are positive about having kids. Everyone says, oh, you have to have a kid. They do say that, but then when you sort of, you know how it's easy to talk about negative stuff more than it is positive stuff? Yeah. So they talk about it in an abstract way, but then if you're saying like, oh, like how's it having kids? The first thing people will say is, oh, like get ready to give up on sleep for the next 10 years. And and it's okay. Like society has these sort of um, automatic responses we give whenever- Anything happens, like, should I start a business? Oh, you should just be lucky to have a job. And you got to start paying attention to these automatic responses people have. Like, for example, if you ever speak on stage, the first thing people will say to you afterwards, great speech. And I remember this. They say this to me. And then I, I started to think, oh, I'm so cool. And then one day I was watching another speaker. He wasn't very good. And afterwards I ran into him like at the buffet table. I said, great speech. And I realized, why did I say that? It's just an automatic response. We almost can't control it. it. Made me realize maybe my speeches weren't as good as I thought. So, by the, the way, I've heard you speak. You do. You are a good speaker. I just speak at Michael Ellsberg's conference. Oh, thank you. I remember 2012. that. I remember September that. September 2012. Yes, and Damn. I remember. Here's what you don't know. After that speech, so James and I were both um, speaking on this uh, sort of like panel, and afterwards, one of the people I was working with came up to me and she said, "Ramit, do you mind if I give you some candid feedback?" And I said, "Yes, I love it." Particularly because the older you get, the less people give you really honest feedback. Like you did right before this podcast. You sort of told me something. You're like, this is not good. You need to fix this. And I was like, love it. So You weren't insulted at all? No. Okay, good. Dude, it is so rare that somebody gives you the gift of honest feedback. Plus, you were polite about it. Yeah, yeah. But you did it out well, of you have to. I think there's an art to constructive criticism. Totally. By the way, you have to be really sincere and want to help the person. And then you have to be solution-driven. Yeah, so. which is exactly what you did. And I totally appreciate that. So this, this woman said, you mind if I give you candid feedback? And she said, why is it that James, who has made and lost tens of millions of dollars, is so much more relatable than you are? Hmm. And I thought to myself, like, She's right. Because you are. You are the most relatable guy. You, you have the best stories. You always are telling, you're, you're confronting the elephant in the room. You're talking about stuff that everyone's thinking, but no one says. And you're just like a fun. You're just fun to hang around with. And I was like, she's right. And it really started me on a journey of trying to get better at it. I just think you're like, to me, I look at you and I'm like, this guy is the most open of anybody I know. Right, but okay, there's different types of honesty, right? Yes. So so I feel like when I'm approaching a topic, the first thing I'm going to do is say, where have I failed at this topic and what did I have to overcome internally to solve my problem, whether it was making money or having a problem in a relationship or, you know, you have to dig deep and then say, what did I do? Then you have to take ownership and saying, okay, no matter whose other fault it was, it was hundred percent my fault. And then you have to figure out, well, what can I do better? Did I need to sleep more? Did I need to learn a little more? Did I need to um, acknowledge my weaknesses a bit more? But I feel you're honest in a different way. The way you say, um, don't take my course unless you are out of debt or don't, you know, you're, you're like the type of person who would say that guy's just not into you, (laughs) you know, just like, Everyone else is saying, "Oh, he'll call you or she'll call you." And you're the type of person who you're the type of person who will say, 
I didn't like your speech. Yeah. Uh, you are at the base level. When you're talking to your customers, I feel very much that's the approach you take. Well, thank you. You're not trying to get everyone to relate to you. You're no. trying to filter out. Yeah, that's right. You're more of a filter. Not that I'm pandering, but I want everyone to like me. Mm. And you're the type to filter out the people who are not going to like you because you're very focused on your building a business. That's exactly right. I think that that's pretty it is pretty accurate. Like I'm focused on top performers. So if you are a top performer or you are aspirationally a top performer, then I'd love to talk to you and I can make you better. And that means I will show you what it actually means to be excellent. I'll show you what actually goes into making a million or much more than that dollars. I'll show you the kind of work that people don't talk about because everybody everybody lies about what it takes. And I only learned this in my 20s and even 30s. So for example, you see this, this person who just looks amazing and they just, they're so fit, they're ripped, they look good, they get the hair. And you're like- Are you talking about me again? Yeah. <laughs> I wake up, I say, James, how did you do it? <laughs> and a poster on and the James, wall. <laughs> and James, by me. Yeah, it's got a big heart. James just goes, it's just natural. I just wake up like this. And it's like, I believed that for so long. Another example I have, I, I know another friend She's a mother of three. She's a, a professional. She's a wife. Um, and she's also an entrepreneur. And by the way, she's super, super fit. And by the way, that type of pers person that you just described, so many people uh, with that description, like let's, I'll even throw more into it. So mother, full-time job, you know, raising three kids, and let's just throw in divorced and struggling and trying to figure out how to pay the mortgage. They will always say, and this is not just women, it's men too. They will always say, I don't have enough time to do what you're saying. I don't have enough time to start a job. I can't do it. And yet there are so many counterexamples, yeah. but they refuse to look at the counterexamples. So and, and that's who I serve. The people who, they don't complain about time because they acknowledge everybody's got the same time. And I want to know how the best do it. So here's an example of the best. So she does all this stuff. She's just very accomplished. She's got super fit. And um, her other friends who are also young moms, they said, how do, you, how do you look like that when you are a mother, a wife, or this or that, entrepreneur? And she used to tell them because she was really into fitness. She would say, I count my calories. I, I count my macros, this and that. And she would tell them her workout split. And she told me their eyes glazed over. She said, they started to hate me because nobody wants to hear how the sausage is made. So then, I said, I said, or, or, or they, yeah, they started to hate her. They either ignored her or they hated her. They mostly hated oh, her because because a lot of times they'll disagree. Well, you need to do this to yeah. have nutrition. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It's like, why am I taking advice from you? You're the one who asked me for advice. Right. But then, so then I asked her, so what do you tell them now? And this is what she told me. She said, now when people ask me, I don't want to get in a fight. I don't want to have this big thing. So I just tell them, well, I try to eat right and I play with my kids. And it explains so much of why when you look around society and you try to figure out how do they actually do it, so many people lie to you. The answer is you want them to lie to you. You don't want the discomfort of knowing what it actually takes to be the best because she would tell you, I have a sleep alarm. I wake up at this time. This is what I do. It's really hard. Sometimes I get hungry. I just, I'm hungry. That's okay. People don't really, most people on average don't like to hear that, but you know who does? The people who actually want to be the best. That's like why you interview the world's top performers and everything. And you're like, oh my God, I have to do what Brandon Webb talked about on your recent podcast. I would be out in the first 30 minutes of that PT. But the best people always want to learn from the best. Average people get intimidated by hearing from the best. You know, it's, it's interesting because I don't like to have 
business guys on the podcast. Even though I'm sort of kind of, um, what do you call it? Like pigeonholed into that area. That's where you find this podcast on iTunes and so on. There's very few businessmen or businesswomen on this podcast uh, just because uh, I really love peak performance. And that is so much more important to me than business performance. Because I feel like if you're good at understanding the language of peak performance, whether it's skateboarding with Tony Hawk or being a sniper with Brandon Webb or being a musician with Coolio or a billionaire with Mark Cuban. Um, if you learn that language of peak performance, you're going to succeed at whatever it takes to, you know, if you need to make a lot of money, if you want to write a best-selling novel, I think today to, or, or tomorrow's podcast or last Thursday's podcast, I released uh, Alex Berenson, who's written 11 bestsellers. So he's not a businessman, but to write 11 New York Times fiction thriller bestsellers, that's a level of peak performance that one out of a million people will achieve. And I want to know how he did it. And not only do I want to know how he did it, but after doing hundreds of these interviews, I feel so blessed with all this knowledge from all these different areas that it's just an amazing life experience for me. The fact that I've done this for the past few years. I, I love it. And I love that you are getting everyone else curious about peak performance. And what does it mean? Because for too long, it's been um, let, let's pander, let's give you some easy answers and then you should feel good. You actually dig in and I love it. I love that you're creating this entire generation of people who are curious about what the best do and how they do it. Like that's why I'm here and I, I'm, I feel very blessed to be asked about this. Well, well, and your, your book, uh, Your Move, it really is, uh, it, it really it does describe the entrepreneur experience because like I was talking to somebody yesterday, he was quote unquote, pitching me an idea. And this is how the pitch goes. <laughs> uh, uh, I want to create a left-wing um, radio network. And I'm like, well, did you, what was, what? tell me from beginning to end what happened with the network that Al Franken and Janine Garofalo and all these guys did that was like a left-wing radio network. And he said, oh, and he started taking out a notebook. I'll have to look that one up. I don't know it. And I'm like, it was the only thing, it was the only left-wing radio network ever and it failed. And, you know, and he said, well, I could talk about current TV. And I'm like, okay, well, that was Al Gore's bought by Al Jazeera, but look at all the, you know, there was lots of reasons it was bought, not just because it was a left-wing TV network. And he's like, and then he said, well, Bernie Sanders had 20 million votes. Uh, how many people do you think will listen to him if he's on TV every day? And well, I said, you could easily see how many people listened last time he was on Rachel Maddow's show on MSNBC. And I'll give you a guess. It's probably about 200,000 people. And he's, by the way, not going to do a TV show every day. So if you have someone who's less famous than him, one half as famous, say, or one third, well, are you, is your network going to survive on 70,000 viewers a day on the top show? So, and he's like writing all this down. He said, okay, when can I, I'm working on, I've been working on this business plan for 19 years. Like he's literally said that to me. And I'm like, well, here's what I would do if I were you. Get your iPhone out and shoot a show and load it to YouTube and see what it looks like. It doesn't have to look good. Just see how many people watch it, see their comments. And that should just be the first thing you try. So just do it. So many your things, move. It's your move. So many things I love about that story. You know, although he probably shouldn't have been working on that for 19 years without getting some market feedback. I do love that he came to you 
and you in a get, restaurant, by the way. Oh, really? He just <laughs> yeah. came up to you? Yeah. All right, I don't love that. Well, let's pretend that that didn't happen. I love that he got some market intelligence from a guy like you who actually knows what he's talking about. I love that you gave him some basic, basic math on how to, you know, 200,000 people. That's good. Um, a lot of times in the early days of a business, your math doesn't have to be that important. It's like, okay, could I sell one unit of a $100 product every day? Awesome. That's pretty decent money. Then I can make two and three sales. So I love that you give him some basic math. I also love the idea of let's stop waiting for some magical answer to come around, for Bernie Sanders to knock on my door and agree to shoot a TV show with me. I love that you said, get on YouTube and do it. So, so many times I see that we create all these uh, roadblocks and milestones for ourselves when it's like, hey, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just create a horrible video on YouTube. And just put it out there and see what happens. Yeah, could be horrible. People will say, this is horrible. That's fine. That comment doesn't really count. What's interesting is to see the other, read between the lines of the other feedback. Because if you just shoot a video with an iPhone and your competition is shooting, you know, video with with six of the most high-end cameras in a professional studio, of course, it's going to look different. But you're you're, you're now looking to see structurally, like, you know, what people forget, and this is why I love your title, Your Move, what people forget is that doing something is so much more important than thinking and planning. Oh man, it's, it's just like swimming. You could read as many books as you want about swimming, get in the water, and it's a totally different game. I remember I had this video right when the recession hit. And by the way, I kept all of my early YouTube videos on my YouTube channel, Ramit Sethi, because I just wanted to show people like my videos sucked. My hair was messed up. I had a laptop. The angle was all wrong. The lighting was terrible. But at least I got started. And I just started to record these things and I would talk about whatever. So I remember one day the recession hit and I recorded this video basically saying, you know, don't worry about this chicken little stuff. Focus on the long term. Keep saving. Keep investing. And I sent it to a friend of ours. um, And I said, hey, Penelope Trunk. Okay. And I said- I, I wish you had to remember that name. We're going to block out that name. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, hey, I really think this video is great. I want to get this in the media. Can you give me some advice on how to do it? And you know what she said to me? She said, I'm going to give you some honest feedback. This video is not great. You have a eye tick in your left eye. You have a verbal tick. You have this, you have that. You need to tighten it up. I would record this about 10 more times before you even think about spreading it. She probably was correct- but she also had, had an agenda in her, her advice. <laughs> <laughs> that may be true. What I, what I remember about that is at least I recorded the video. Yeah. And I got that feedback from somebody who gave me some good feedback. It was good feedback. And since then, if you look at the videos now, I got this professional crew and I have all these cool cameras. Oh, no, you look like you're on a, like a real news studio. Yeah. Which you should, by the way, because when you see it, people don't realize this. When they when they go see news like the morning ABC morning news on their broad, local broadcast ABC, you it looks totally professional. But all it is is a desk with a logo. Everyone's wearing a suit and cleanly shaved. And in the background, it looks like there's screens with yeah. things happening. And then there's nothing else. You, oh, like you, if you actually go to the physical location of the studio, <laughs> you could see this is I could have done this in a in a garage. And wait, but it James, looks like really professional. You're telling me the Empire State Building is not actually behind the studio? No, that it's it's so crazy. It's 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 like I I visited the other day um, 
Bill O'Reilly's ex studio, you know, where it, which is now, it's a ghost town. Cause I was watching a friend of mine go on Fox and he said, oh, right here is Bill O'Reilly's studio. It's now all covered. Wow. It's just, it's just, though, it was just a desk with like a screen behind it. I remember going on the Today Show and I was, I was pretty young. I was like, humble brag Today Show. Yeah. I, was, I just woke up one day. I just walked on the Today Show. And, and uh, they, first of all, they sat me down in makeup. Okay. And, I had gone on maybe a couple of TV things, but not, nothing like this. I mean, this was really the big leagues. And the makeup lady, they're very nice. And she starts like spraying water on my face. And, you know, I'm like this guy. I don't know what this guy said. Why are you spraying water on my face? And she literally put her hand on my shoulder. She goes, oh, honey, is this your first time on TV? And I didn't know it was foundation or whatever it is they spray out of this thing. So, so they finished doing my makeup. It doesn't take that long for a guy. It's like, three minutes. And she goes, okay, this is your first time with real makeup. Take a look. And she goes, what do you think about yourself? And I looked and I was like, I look amazing. And she's like, that's interesting because most guys, when they first see themselves in makeup for the first time, they actually hate it because we've never seen ourselves. So I walk in the studio, $25 million studio. I mean, the lighting is just like, you don't know it at the time, but it's just very professional. When I watched the clip later, I was like, man, that is probably the best I will ever look. I had the best professionals making me look good with the best lighting and the best everything. But those studios, they are, there's something, they know what they're doing, right? They do know what they're doing. They make you look great. The anchors are the best people in the world. They're the most relatable. Oh, it's it's a different world. They're they're very um, likable. Like that's, and that's a very difficult skill. And it's a skill, by the way, you have to master as a business person. So your likability is, uh, you know, you you know, we discussed it already. You have this filter where you say, if you didn't do this, don't think you can apply to my course. Or if you're not willing to put it in the work, you know, don't think you could apply. That's almost like standoffish. But at the same time, if people get through that filter, yeah. you, you it's very likable. People appreciate you're being honest. And then from that point on, you're, you're, you have a very likable persona that you bring through your court. You bring well, thank them through you. your courses. Somebody made a comment somewhere that once they actually join one of my courses, I'm actually a lot warmer. And I, I will say, I, I never try to be rude on purpose, never. Um, but I do think that it's respectful to be really honest to people. I really do. Honest so, and 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 don't forget they're paying you, right? So so you need, there's a little bit of respect once somebody's a customer. Absolutely. But even if they're subscribing to me, I think it's respectful to say, look, you have $7,000 of credit card debt. No, you shouldn't join this $2,000 course. You should, here's the free chapter of my book on paying off your debt. Go pay it off. When you are done, we will be here for you. That That's very important because I think having a long-term view of your business and customers, and by the way, we're diving right into building a business. Your business essentially is about building businesses, which is almost a category that is a suspect category. Oh, it's super suspect. Let me just say this. But I will say yours is the one, and you know this, yours is the only one in the thousands in that category that I recommend. And I actually write (sighs) and recommend it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I do want to say I first started off, I didn't never woke up and said, I want to write an ebook about writing ebooks to write an ebook. I'd rather jump off a bridge. What I, I got interested in personal finance because I took my college scholarship money and I invested it in the stock market and I lost half of it right away. So I got pretty good at personal finance, wrote a book on that. You got, by the way, I want to take that back. You got good at it because it's important 
to to figure out you took ownership of yeah. losing the money. You didn't say, "Oh, my broker lost my money," or there was a no, recession. Yeah, so you took ownership, and then you figured out how to be better. Yeah, there's, there was there's two steps there that you just skipped over. Love that. Thank you for for breaking that down. To be able to read a lot of information, which is something you encourage your listeners to do. Listen, learn, get in front of a lot of different types of information. That's what I did with personal finance. And I, the second part of that is actually learning what's true and what's a lie. So a lot of the stuff I read from Wall Street was just point blank a lie. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Thank the Lord for our newest sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. And I have to say, it's been a really great decision for me, and I'll tell you why. The recipe cards are so easy to follow, and I am not a good cook, so I need those recipe cards. The food is pre-measured for you, so there's no waste, again, which is also really important for me, and everything tastes fresh. Hence the name HelloFresh. They call themselves a fork to feel good company too because when you cook and eat delicious and healthy meals, you want to keep doing it again and again. Plus, it's only $10 a meal. HelloFresh currently offers customers a classic box, a veggie box, and a family box. HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. Customers can order three to five different meals per week designed for two or four people. New recipes are created every week. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter James Altucher 30 when you subscribe. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat and simple recipes you'll love to cook. Get cooking. The single router model for Wi-Fi just doesn't work for our increasingly high bandwidth world. What you need is a distributed system, but that can cost considerable effort and money. Thankfully, whatever your Wi-Fi needs, Eero, E-E-R-O, has the power to seamlessly blanket your home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi in just a few minutes. Simply download the Eero app on your iOS or Android devices, and it'll walk you through each step of the setup process. Then you can manage your network right from the palm of your hand. Better yet, Eero updates automatically so that you not only have the latest features, but the latest security at all times, which is critical, particularly if you're running for president of the United States. And thanks to Eero's incredible customer support, you can call and get a hold of a Wi-Fi expert within 30 seconds. I'll tell you why I love Eero versus traditional Wi-Fi. With Eero, I get the best coverage. I don't need to walk looking for a place where internet won't be spotty. Plus, it's easy to set up. Guaranteed, if I can't set up something easily, it's returned that day. Eero does the hard parts for you by designing something that's so easy to use and customize. For free overnight shipping, visit Eero.com, select overnight as the shipping option, and enter James at checkout. That's Eero.com, E-E-R-O.com, and offer code James at checkout. Let's go back and forth on just giving people some sample lies in the money or oh Wall Street God. space. I'd love it. Hold on. Do you have another 10 hours here? Because I could tell you all about Wall Street's lies. And by the way, people will fight it to the bone. The people who um, argue against the fiduciary rule, which is basically a rule that says 
you should put your client's best interests first. Okay, That's so, all it is. So, so, so A, I've professionally managed money and B, I've um, also allocated money to other professional money managers. And I can tell you 99% of people, their entire job in life is to figure out ways around that rule so they could take more money for exactly. themselves. Yeah. So by the way, this is all going to seem very um, apocalyptic and dangerous for the average consumer. But the good news is you don't need to pay some fancy broker or wealth manager. You can actually do all this stuff on your own. So I, I don't want anyone to think that Wall Street is trying to get one over you. They are, but you can win the game anyway. So some lies they tell you are, uh, you need to invest in their actively managed fund because they have expertise. That's a lie. What matters in your investing is uh, low cost funds that are well diversified. So I, you know I don't make a cent from any of the companies I recommend, um, but. You can check them out in my book or you can Google it or whatever. Um, they'll tell you that you need... So that's one lie. You, you, you want to go back and forth? Well, I will say that um, uh, any type of active management where there's an extra layer of fees... Yeah. So they're, they're always saying active management or hedge fund or mutual fund. They're always saying because they're going to charge fees for it. Like, oh, uh, and then by the way... The I'll go I'll go one step further. If you go to a broker and he says try this actively managed fund, he's also not telling you he's probably every fund has two versions: one with marketing fees and one without marketing fees. There's no real reason for them to have two versions. And like, why would anybody go in the fund with the marketing fees extra? But the broker will always direct you towards the one with the marketing fees because he he takes a cut on that. It happens 100% of the time. You don't know I, it? I've sat in those meetings with friends just silently taking notes like the broker didn't know who I was or whatever. <laughs> and and they always, 100% of the time, they recommended the ones with the marketing fees. Hold on. I finally met someone who is as dark and vindictive as I am because I do the exact same thing. I sit in meetings where I pretend to not know anything about personal finance and then my friend is there and I tell them exactly what's actually going on afterwards. So yeah, that happened to me. And by the way, so, and then I wrote a Financial Times article about it. I told my friend the 10 places where this guy lied to you. And, and then a week later I called her and I said, so what did you decide to do? Did you go with him? And she said, yes. Oh. And, and, and I said, why did you do that? And, and she was like, well, he's in the neighborhood. He knows my mom. Oh my you know, God. So. And I just ended up paying him $380,000 over the course of my lifetime. Hey, here's an interesting fact that a lot of people don't know. So you talk to a broker or if you are paying for your mutual funds, if you don't know if you're, how much you're paying, you probably don't, just email the place where you have your investments and say, what are the fees that I'm currently paying? Here's a startling fact a lot of people don't know. If you're paying 1%, so your assets under management, you're paying 1%, that can reduce your investment returns by over 25%. If you're paying 2%, that can reduce your investment returns by over 63%. That's insane. The math is not intuitive. It's totally counterintuitive. And that's how Wall Street wins. Because 1% fee doesn't sound like that much. 1% to do all this money stuff, that's not bad. But that's hundreds of thousands of dollars out of your pocket into Wall Street. It's not like paying somebody to mow your lawn. It's not. The amount of hidden fees are astronomical. Right. So, so okay. So this is on the personal finance front. And we could probably do a whole thing on personal finance. But I actually really want to get to, um, I'm sitting in the cubicle and I'm thinking, you know what? Uh, 
I hear these guys talking about how to start a business or how to make money. Uh, there's, there's three things I don't know. I don't know what I love enough to, to pursue making money on. Can it make money or not? Um, I don't know where to begin. And, and then I don't know how to scale it. And then I don't know how to balance my time with it. Uh, I, I feel like those three things are included in, you know, the first steps of your move. Mm -hmm. So if I want to actually start, uh, I have to find something I love doing. Otherwise it's pointless to me. And I'm not, if you don't love what you're doing, it's not like we have, you know, a lot of people write to me and say, oh, what's my passion or what, how do I find my passion or how do I find my love? You have many things that you could love doing. Um, and then some of them will intersect with making money and some of them won't, but you do need to love what you're doing a little bit or else the people who do love it will compete with you and win. Yes. I do think that, I do think that eventually you have to love what you're doing, but I also have a little bit of a different take on that. Okay. I think that it's, I think that when you get really good at something, you fall in love with it. So, which is, which is the Mark Cuban approach. You know, he, he, he has said that, that, but I don't believe him because if you look at him, he, he loves two things. He loves making money. Mm -hmm. He really loves it. He loves business. And some people do love business and he loves basketball. And so he, his, his biggest source of gain and net worth has really been buying the Dallas Mavericks for 400 million. And now it's probably worth 5 billion. So, you know, and, and, and AudioNet, which became broadcast.com, he started it because he had, he, he did love technology, but he loved basketball more. And he combined his two interests. He wanted to see Ohio basketball games while he was listening, sitting in Texas. And so he wanted to figure out a way to stream those basketball games to Texas. So he started broadcast.com. So he did end up loving what he was, even though that quote, you learn to love, you know, what you're good at. I do believe that too. Um, I think the initial spark still comes from love. I, I agree with that. I, I think that we are saying similar things. You do have to have a spark. Like I'm not going to create, you know, snail food. That's not my passion. Or I'm not going to buy a basketball team. <laughs> yeah, like it, it's, it doesn't make any sense. And uh, But I, I do think that my belief, and I know a guy named Cal Newport shares this, you know, be so good they can't ignore you. Uh, I think part of it is influenced by my culture. So in Indian culture until pretty recently, the concept was when it came to arranged marriages was first you get married, then you fall in love. And that's exactly what happened with my parents. They met, seven days later, they got married. They've been married now um, almost 40 years. Um, and the concept was you first meet, you agree on the basics. You know, do we have good families? Do we, do we have similar goals? Um, the, the Western ideal of a love marriage is actually very historically recent. So I do think that part of my thinking on this and what I have found to be true uh, with my business is, yeah, I had some interest in personal finance, but I don't love it. I don't wake up and say like, let's talk about you know tax loss harvesting. I agree with you, but I think what you love doing, you had an interest in personal finance and we're going back to your college dorm days. You had an interest in personal finance, but what you really loved, what you fell in love with and got better at was teaching your interest and seeing the excitement. You loved the excitement back when you taught people something they didn't know. Yes, I love being a teacher. I absolutely love it. It's my favorite thing uh, in the world. I love cracking the code on human psychology and then teaching people the insights. Yes, and that's that's all you've done. Like you've, even when you're joking around, I'm, I'm remembering three years ago, uh, we went to some 
some play or we went to dinner and then I was going to some some play and you made a joke like here's things women talk about that's different from here's things men talk about. That's all so, I talk about. <laughs> so so you 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 you're very good at observing what people are thinking and doing and you like then uh describing yeah, it. Yeah, I do. And so and you like observing things that are a little weird and uh <laughs> and so in personal finance you saw lots of things that were weird and plus you know everybody's a little bit interested in money particularly at a young age and uh you wanted to teach it. Yeah. That, that is so true and and I don't remember that story, but it remember like we were going to the Tucker Max. Uh, I don't know. If, oh, I forget I do, if you yeah. went. Uh, so, so, and then you were telling me, this is what, you know, women talk about astrology. <laughs> like, oh, that and is men true. Nev- men among men never talk about that astrology. Is true. So, Man, yeah. great memory. Okay, so I, then, then I, love, I love the psychology part of starting a business too, because I think there are so many people who think about this. They listen to podcasts, they read blogs, maybe they're on my newsletter. And they're thinking like, I should start a business, but, and then their mind gives them these politically correct things. I don't have time. I don't have an idea. Those are very politically correct because nobody's going to argue. Nobody's going to sit you down and say, James, you actually have a lot of time. You just inefficiently manage it. You watch an average of one hour and one and a half hours of Netflix a day. Okay. Let me play devil's advocate because I've had this conversation with someone recently. Mm -hmm. I've had that exact conversation her response was, I need my one and a half hours of Netflix because that's my downtime and I just had a hard day at my full-time job. Well, I'm not going to argue with her. So my, <laughs> my, my place in life is like, look, I talk to the people who want to make a change. If she is totally satisfied with that one and a half hours of Netflix, by the way, I don't judge. I watch a ton of TV. I love, I watch every show. What's your favorite show on, on Netflix right now? Uh, I'm, I just started watching Ozark yesterday okay. they've been pushing it yeah Ozark. i just started watching master of none oh it's good Fantastic. season two is amazing i i am starting season two with my little daughter tonight so good oh my god it's a great one um like look if i learned in my early 20s that it's a not a good idea to tell people what they should do when they're not ready and this is where I started to learn that what people say is often not what they mean. So people would be, we'd be sitting around the dining hall talking about, you know, overdraft fees or whatever money thing. And I had been researching personal finance for like years at the time. I knew this stuff. And I said, oh, like you should, I'll, I'll teach you everything you need to know about money. Like an hour is free. And they'd be like, okay. And then they would never come to my class. Never. And I used the word class charitably. I was like sitting on the couch in the dining hall. By the way, you have another example in your book, uh, Your Move, where you you offer a course, uh, the Earn 1K course for, let's say, I forget what the price is, whatever the price is, $2,000. And um, uh, you had friends who said, Ramit, uh, can you share the course with me for free? We're friends. And you would give them the course for free. And then you would check the analytics and you would see not a single one of the friends who got it for free ever opened it. They'd never, because, they'd never got past, value what they pay for. That's right. They and, never got past module one. And this is the, this is the argument we're, we're going, I promise we're going to get into kind of the nitty gritty details of building a business. Cause I think this is the important part of your peak performance. And also I want to help the listeners, but I think it's important to acknowledge you have to charge. And you mentioned this over and over again. You taught me this. You have to charge uh, for what has value because people will not value what they don't pay for. Now, I write every day for free. I write an article every single day for free. I, this podcast is free. 
I love doing this. I want to give it free for free because I know it will hit the, the biggest reach. I don't want to put a subscription wall because I know then there'll be less people listening, less people sharing. But I think there are some things that you put so much value into and have so much value you have to pay for or people won't, you have to charge for or people won't value. Let me give some thoughts on this because I think it's one of the most... And people are afraid to charge. They're afraid. They're, they're afraid to be salesy. Yeah. I, I want to talk about this because I've spent the last 15 years thinking about this and I've come to some pretty uh, counterintuitive um, conclusions. So number one, uh, I give away 98% of my material for free. You have to, by the way. I think I think rule number one is that you create your biggest value for free. I agree. Because you have to uh, you have to tell people who you are and, and how you're the type of person who's going to overpromise and overdeliver more than everyone else. So 98% huge value for free. I think that's step number 1 in building a business. Step number 1. And then we have an internal goal which is our goal is that our free material is better than anyone else's paid stuff. And it I would challenge so I would that's challenge you right now come sign up for our, our newsletter. B- stay on it for 6 weeks. And tell me if there's any other newsletter as good as it for free out there. So that's our goal to ourselves. Then there's a concept that I want everybody to internalize. And that is they got to put some skin in the game. And I want to give you some examples from business. I want to give you some examples from dating. There's a million different examples. So in business, the way I grew up, Indian people, my parents were very much like help out anyone who needs help don't even think of charging if they're a cousin or a relative or anybody, just help them. And I did that. That's fine. Over time, as you get busier, you start to need to narrow things down. You can't just help everybody forever because if I answer, I get 2000 emails a day. If I sat and answered every single person's email, that's all I would do every single day. Right. And you know, and I think um, just, it's very important to know you can either focus your time on writing one thing that helps 200,000 people or writing 2,000 letters, you know, to help a few hundred people or whatever. And, and and you can go between those. So right now it's you and me, one-on-one. We're having a great time, but you're also going to help hundreds of thousands of people listen to this. Um, you can decide what you want, but you can't just help everybody forever at a one-to-one level. If you're good, then you won't scale. But so let, let me ask you this, because in your book, you do say what's a big differentiator in your business to other kind of online information businesses is that you communicate directly to customers. Yeah. So how do you balance that? There is no balance. You just, if you love, if you're doing something you truly love, when somebody emails me and asks an interesting psychology question, first of all, I read every email I get, every single one. And I actually respond to a lot, like hundreds a day. If you're in any of my Facebook groups, you see me, I'm in there active. So I do agree that um, a lot of people, they try to imagine they're like this Goldman Sachs CEO just like directing a fleet of black cars. It's like, no, stop thinking that. Roll up your sleeves, get in there, do things that don't scale. So you're talking one-on-one, but you also need to be cognizant that you could spend your whole life answering one-off Facebook questions. You need to create assets that are going to build for you. So so, so let's let's back off a second or not back off, but real back. I want to. I want to get back to the skin in the game because that's really yeah. important. But how does somebody find the idea that they want to build a business around? And by business, let, let's just say very specifically, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna make some name. I'm gonna build a business that uh, teaches people how to um, lose weight. You know, a thousand times faster. So, and then I'm gonna write a one page course and I'm gonna sell it 
for ten dollars to a hundred of my friends, mm-hmm. and I just made a thousand dollars. So that that's like a mini. I'm, that's a bad business, and yeah. it's a, and it's. I'm just describing in a very simplified version business. Good. So, okay. So, so so how do you find the idea you love that you could write something about or make a course around whether it's video or text or whatever that I could start then selling to somebody and I just gave my friends as a first example but then we're going to scale it. The first thing that a lot of people forget is that you actually have something that people would pay for. And the way you have to get your psychology straight on this because if you don't it just feels like an impossible chasm to cross. But if, I, if I've been working in a cubicle for 15 years, mm-hmm. I graduated college with a degree in sociology. No judgment on that. You learned a lot. I did that. Okay, you graduated with a degree in sociology, <laughs> and then you worked in a cubicle at an accounting firm for 15 years. And let's not even say an accounting firm. You worked in a PR firm or you're a paralegal for 15 years. Um, and you say to Rami, but Rami, I don't really know what skills I have that people okay. are willing to pay for. I'm going to tell you. So number one, I want you to ask yourself, just get a piece of paper out right now or pull out your phone. What do you already pay for? So a lot of people never stop to make the connection that, think about the things you pay for. You pay for an oil change. Why? You could change the oil yourself, but you pay someone. You pay at a restaurant. Why? You could cook the food yourself. What else do you pay for? Most people don't pay for a personal trainer. Most people don't buy books either. What else do you, you pay for Netflix? Why? You could go outside. It's three-dimensional. There's so many things that we pay for. I pay for somebody to clean my apartment once a week. So that's a service that I could do myself. What am I doing there? I'm paying for convenience. I'm trading money for time, etc. So let's start by just making a list of the things you pay for. What do you notice about that? The first thing you notice is there are lots of different reasons you pay. You might be paying Netflix because it's pure entertainment. You might be paying somebody to uh, cook a meal at a restaurant because, uh, well, you just don't want to. It's convenience. Maybe it tastes better. Wait, think, think about a restaurant for a second. You're not only paying for uh, uh, somebody who has studied cooking to cook a meal for you with hopefully the best ingredients, ingredients you wouldn't necessarily find in a store because he's going down to the local fresh foods market in the morning, picking out any ingredients. Now he's got a recipe he learned in cooking school and he's going to cook that for you and people are going to serve that to your table and then they're going to clean up for you. Mm, the cleaning. <laughs> and you get to go. And, and notice you're not going in the back, kicking down the door of the kitchen and saying, show me your credentials. You just want that lobster or those nachos. That's it. Right. So it's really important to see what you pay for and why. That's number one. And the key point of this whole thing is hey, you already pay for a lot of stuff. And if you are you know, 18 years old and you don't pay for anything, ask your friend who's 25. They definitely pay for stuff and your 40, 60-year-old oh, parents if you're 18, do. you might pay, pay for games. You, may pay, you might pay for in-game purchases. You're there paying you for mobile apps. You might be paying for books or comic books or whatever. Or clo- Certainly you're paying for clothes. Perfect. So then the next thing that I want you to do is I want you to write down what skills you have. Now, the skills can be things like I speak Spanish, you better put, I speak English, because that's a skill. Um, I'm good at cooking. I'm good at dressing myself really well. That's a very profitable skill right there. Uh, I can keep my house or apartment organized. These are all skills. Now, the key part of this is that a lot of people take themselves for granted. They don't think there's anything special about speaking English. Well, there's a lot of English teachers. There's a lot of math teachers. So in order to get those, a lot of times it's hard to just come up with those on your own. I'm going to take you to number three, which is if you get stuck, go ask your friends. 
And this is what you say to them. You say, hey, look, I'm doing this weird thing. I'm thinking about maybe starting something on the side. I don't know. But can you think of two or three skills that I have that you would describe I'm pretty good at? And they're going to say stuff like, oh my God, you always keep your apartment clean. And you would have thought, oh, that's, yeah, so doesn't everybody? No, write it down. That's how you start coming up with a list of things. Like for you, James, you'd be like, I play chess. To you, that's just, a, you know, it's a game. How many people would love to learn chess from James Altucher? I have no idea. But that, that's a point. Yeah. And then, so, so now you've come up with, first of all, you've gotten your psychology straight. You know that you pay for a lot of things and a lot of people pay for a lot of things. People want to take their money and use it to fuel a rich life. Then you've written down a list of skills you have. It could be math. It could be whatever. Um, a lot of times people get hung up. They, number one, they don't think of the ideas. Number two, they think they have to be super technical. Like I'm a programmer. No. A lot of times you're a, you can design the cover of a book. That's awesome. Uh, then, now you have a list of ideas. And by the way, I just want to address the design the cover of a book thing for a second. There's also a lot of resources to learn how to design a great book. So you, if you, if you say to yourself, "Boy, I love looking at book covers," and I'm a, and I'm a designer. I've been, in, I, in, I, I loved art as a kid. I think I can learn this. There's a lot of books you could read, books you could study, and then you could try. You can go to up like, to a couple of friends. Hey, can I design your book cover? And now suddenly you have credentials. You designed three or four book covers. You've studied from all the masters because you've read all of their books and you've studied all the the trends and so on. Now you can say legitimately. I have a skill in book cover design, but now there's two ways to, to make money from it. I can A, do something that's not scalable. Oh, I'm going to design book by book and it takes weeks to really design a good book cover. Or I could do, and this is where I feel you're suggesting with, with your book, your move. I can, I can create something that's scalable that could build wealth. Yeah. So creating an asset is really important and um, they don't teach you this in school. They don't, they don't teach you this in school. They, how, how could they? How Not could, even in business school. Yeah, how could they? Because just rationally, the people who are instructors at a high school or a college or business school, they are not creating assets for themselves. So it's a bit unreasonable to expect a teacher to teach us about you know, creating assets and all these different models. That's not what they do. That's not their role. So that's what we are here for, which is to say, it's first of all, it's awesome to get um, aligned on what it is you want. I want to live a rich life. My rich life is, you know, maybe I want to buy an expensive pair of pants. Maybe I want to pair for my parents' retirement. Whatever it is, unapologetically, this is my rich life. And, and by the way, a rich life, I know we're going back and forth on lots of different things, but a rich life, a lot of times people just assume it means a number mm. um, or it means I should be rich enough to afford X. And look, I give a lot of credit to Gary Vaynerchuk, for him, a rich life means he wants to own the New York Jets or New Jersey. I don't even know what the what state they're in. He <laughs> wants to own the Jets. So, and that's going to cost him like a billion dollars. So I give him a lot of credit. He's going to build up a business that will do that. I do not want to uh, own anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to just do every day what's fun for me without having to worry about how my how I'm going to survive during my life and how my kids will survive. So that's like my own goal. Yeah. Everybody's got a different goal for this. Mine is, um, like for me, the simple things that remind me that I'm living a rich life are uh, I can take a taxi if I want, if it's really hot and I don't want to go on the subway, I can take a taxi. That's like 10 bucks. 
Um, and not just today. You want to know that 20 years from now you can do yes. it. Yes. Uh, I want to know that if I go out to a restaurant that I can order appetizers. And like when I was a kid, we did not order appetizers. In fact, we hardly ever ate out. Um, but like, I, and I can take people out to eat and I can pay for their meal. That's a rich life. And this summer has been so hot. My new rich life motto is uh, I experience a rich life when I walk in my apartment and the air conditioning is on. Right, so you can leave it on yeah. when you leave, which That's some it. people can't do. Yeah, and and so, yeah, of, of course, once in a while, I want to take a five-star trip and I want to stay in the coolest hotels, and I do that once in a while. But day-to-day, -day, a rich life is much simpler. And that's what it is for me. Some people really don't care about that. They have totally different needs. The thing that... I, I think this is an important exercise, though, because it reminds me of something in uh, Tony Robbins' book mm -hmm. where, or maybe something he, he told me where somebody said, he said, what do you want uh, to somebody in his audience? And this kid thought he was being, you know, great. Oh, I want to, my goal is a billion dollars. And Tony Robbins said, let's break that down. I mean, a year and a half ago, most of my listeners know I threw out almost everything I owned yeah. because I realized I didn't really want anything. And so I have two outfits and one bag and a laptop and a phone and a toothbrush and maybe a couple other things, like a Kindle or whatever, or uh, something to read with. But uh, I don't really want anything else except experiences. For me, I want to be able to have just about any experience I want that day. How, how do your listeners react to that when they heard that you did that? Um, they, I think they, I think, I mean, I don't know for the bulk of them, but I think the questions I got was, do you really only have 15 items? Mm. And the answer was yes. Although I don't count, I count like my socks as like an item. <laughs> and, you know, I count like an outfit as an item. Mm -hmm. So I have like an outfit. Mm -hmm. So I have two, I have two to two and a half outfits and then a computer and a Kindle and a bag and a toothbrush. And that's, really about it. Mm. So I don't have anything else. And uh, and then and then they they thought, well, it takes money to live in Airbnbs. And on the one on the one hand it does, but on the other hand, I'm not buying any furniture. I'm not putting down first month's rent, last month's rent, security deposit. I'm not uh, I'm not paying a lawyer to write me a reference. So in New York you need all sorts of references to to rent an apartment or to buy. You need a lot of cash to buy. Um, I don't uh, I'm not shopping for tons of food that I end up throwing out, uh, which most people do, whether they realize it or not. I'm not paying all sorts of, I don't know, I'm not paying for all sorts of extra things that other people pay for. I'm not paying for a lot of clothes. Here's what I love about this. Like, first of all, I have zero interest in doing what you're doing, right? It, to which me, is fine. Yeah. I don't recommend it, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> but I love, love, love when I meet somebody who says, like, this is my rich life. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but here's why I'm doing it. I love it. Here's how it makes me feel. I can afford it. I've engineered my life and my business to support this. And I'm having a great time. Like, you're not going to see me vagabonding around New York. That's just not my style. But I love that you're doing it and sharing that example with people. I think every single one of us has some weird thing in our rich life that we would love to do. But it's a, it makes us a little nervous to talk about it. it. Makes us a little weird. Like, I have a private chef. It's a little weird. I didn't talk about it for many years because it's pretty indulgent. Um, but I love it. And by the way, when you have a private chef and I, I don't have a private chef, but I'm just using your example. A, you don't have to take the time to go out to a restaurant. I hate waiting in a restaurant, particularly if I eat a little faster than my friends. I hate waiting. Yeah. So with a private chef, you're not waiting. They're using great ingredients. So you're going to be healthy. Um, you're probably not paying that much more than a restaurant, but you have now this extra time, uh, 
And it's not like your private chef is also bringing over a bag of extra nacho cheese Doritos to put in the <laughs> middle of the table. Hey, I thought you'd maybe munch on this while I'm cooking. Like you're not buying all these extra snacks that you're gonna, then gonna that's then gonna go from the table to your stomach. <laughs> I, I think that, tell me what you think of this. I'm curious, I've been playing with this idea. I think that if you claim something as a priority and you're not spending at least 10% of your time or 10% of your discretionary budget, then maybe it's not a priority. Uh, it depends. I'm trying to think what I spend. I think that's right because I'm always in favor. Find the five things you love doing yeah. and then just go all out all doing out. them. So, so for instance, you, we mentioned earlier in this, I've gotten into uh, stand-up comedy lately and I've, I went on the subway. I did stand-up comedy. For me, now 10% of my time at least is spent on improving. Let's say, I would say there's a hundred micro skills involved that people don't realize in getting better at that macro skill of, of stand-up comedy. It's particularly stand-up, not any other types of, types of comedy. Not like humor. Humor is a different skill. Stand-up comedy is a different skill. Writing comedy is a different skill. But within the umbrella of stand-up comedy, there's about a hundred micro skills. And I probably spend at least 10% of my time on it. But it's not separate from the other things I do. It's me then describing how I'm learning and how I'm trying to get better at something benefits everybody, all, all of my readers who are also trying to get better at their skills to have a business, for instance. So you, what you're saying is you're not just adding on an extra 10% of time to study stand-up. You just put on a new set of lenses. The stuff you're doing now, you can actually interpret through these stand-up lenses. Yeah, and also I want to study what it is, how I'm getting better. And, and I want to study, how am I dealing with failure? What's the psychology of when someone heckles me? Because that happens in, in daily life. Someone says something to you out of nowhere that you don't like and that makes you feel very uncomfortable, like physically uncomfortable. How am I psychologically dealing with it? I can't blame him because my role is to take ownership of what I'm doing. So how am I dealing with it? And that's something I could translate into the other things I do, which includes writing for my readers in a way that helps them. Yeah. And so so anything I do, I make sure I can always translate it into something I can write about that's relatable to everyone. So one of the things that I'm talking about astrology and and one of the things that a lot of us love is discovering patterns about ourselves. And that's why people love astrology because it's like, oh James, you're the kind of guy who blah 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 blah. And no matter what I say, you're gonna lean in. You cannot stop listening to the end of that sentence. So I'll give you a little suggestion on how to learn a little bit more about yourself. A lot of times we don't really know what our priorities are, or it's hard for us to articulate what is valuable to us until we look at our own behavior. So one simple thing to do for everybody listening would be, if you don't have a calendar, start a calendar. You don't have to do it forever. Just do it for the next two weeks. If you have one, go back and look at the last two weeks and see where you spent your time and just create a simple pie chart like I spent this much time at work. I spent this much time uh, walking around at the gym, eating, whatever. And you're going to learn some pretty surprising things. It's the difference between what we think we value and what we actually value. I'll also uh, dig one step further in that. If you work at a nine to five job, keep track of every 15 minute period, what you're doing then. Um, you could do it at the end of the day or you could do it once an hour. What did I do for the last four or 15 minute periods? Because in a lot of times people don't work nine to five. They're surfing the web part of that time. They're texting with their friends. They're taking a cigarette break. They're on an hour and a half lunch break. I'm not being critical of any of this. 
But I think I noticed when I had a nine to five job, the average person there probably worked about three hours of the eight hours. And I'm not exaggerating. They would come in a little bit later. They would leave a little bit earlier. They had days off. So I averaged it in. They had cigarette breaks in the morning and in the afternoon. They had a lunch break. They had the water cooler breaks, the bathroom breaks. Probably worked exactly. And then, and they probably had meetings too that were useless. So they probably actually worked and created value for their company two to three hours a day. That's important to know because for me, for instance, I started my first business during those extra hours of free time I realized I had on the job at my full-time job. But now let's get back to how do I find what I love that I can do that I can also sell and how do I sell it? Okay. Not, not how do I sell it, but how do I make something out of what I love that can be sold? Okay, so the, the typical answer is um, take a skill that you've got, which we've already identified. We've asked our friends. Let, let's say my friend though is still... 15 years paralegal, and I majored in sociology. I wrote down I could speak English. Uh, I, my friends called me for advice about their marriage. Maybe that's a skill. That's a huge skill. Uh, losing weight? I, How about that? Lo- losing weight, yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's, take oh, that. let's take that. Let's take that. So let's say that you used to be overweight, and now you lost weight. And I'm picking this intentionally because this is a pretty hard uh, idea to turn into a business because there's a million lose weight products out there. So I'm, it's like I'm going and running in uh, altitude right now. I'm choosing a harder idea. Okay. So let's say that I'm this person and I used to be overweight and now I lost, you know, 60 pounds and I kept it off for the last six, seven years. So what do I know about this? I know that my friends have asked me, how do you do it, Ramit? Okay, I've heard this a few times, but when I tell them, they don't really seem to do anything. Okay, I'm, I'm writing this down. I'm taking some observations. I know that there's a lot of other weight loss products out there. There's Weight Watchers, there's this, there's that. Uh, it makes me a little nervous because some of them sound a little scammy. It also makes me nervous because there's a lot of competition. How am I ever going to compete with all these guys? But I just keep coming back to it because it's something that I love. I'm passionate. Another question. Yeah, people who lose weight, by the way, and, and you're one of them, I'm actually one of them. Yeah. Well, I gained weight. <laughs> well, you gain weight because you gain muscle. Yeah. So, so there's a different type of of. Yeah, I had, I, I had skinny guy psychology. I, I actually specifically lost weight in the past three years. And what happens when you lose weight is that you love the process. You love being able to say what you did. Yeah. It's kind of like becoming religious. You want to just tell everyone, and everyone's like, "Oh God, yeah, not, not again." So, so all right, what happens? You, th- this is the key. This is the differentiator. Like I said, a lot of people, they come up with an idea and they go straight to creating an ebook and doing all these crazy funnels. I would say- A funnel, by the way, is just like, hey, sign up for my email list where I'll give you my 10 tips every week. And then once you're on an email list, the next part of the funnel is, hey, you might be interested in my $10 special report about how to um, lose 10 pounds right before Christmas. And then now you're in the next part of the funnel is, hey- uh, you bought that. You might be interested in my, you know, every month I'll send you, uh, it's it's $15 a month. I'll send you, here's what my diet tips for the month are. So that's the funnel. Exactly. I would say slow down to go fast. So the key differentiator of our products, the reason that our products have been so successful in some pretty competitive industries, personal finance, careers, uh, business training, um, we have bestsellers in in all of those you have, categories. You have eighteen products, just to specify. Yeah, and, and they're uh, mostly high end. You don't yeah. sell a lot of. You know, most people sell. You say ninety eight percent is free. Then a lot of people sell like a a cheap product, like a fifty dollar a year product. But you got kind of went straight 
to this is valuable. It's a $2,000 product. Yeah, well, if I'm serving top performers and top performers are serious and capable, then they have the money to spend and they are willing to take their discretionary money and put it towards getting a $50,000 raise or starting a $300,000 business. Right, so they'll spend $2,000 yeah. to get it's, a $50,000 raise. It's the best ROI you can get in the world. But but like dieting though, a $2,000 product is very expensive. That is very expensive. And so this is why it's important to know your market. So this is where you want to go and you want to talk to some people. And some people call this customer research. Other people just, they just go and talk to some people. I would take those people that are around you that have asked you for advice and I'd say, hey, um, I'd love to chat with you about um, I'm thinking about creating a business. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it or not, but I'd love to just ask you a few questions. And you can say, hey, I know you asked me about my diet uh, a month ago. I'm just curious, like, where did that question come from? What have you been thinking about? This, By the way, I've read this in your book, Your Move. This is incredibly valuable. I hadn't read this other places. The reason this is valuable is not only in designing a product, but how do you sell the product? Because if they're going to ask you, well, I want to look good for my wedding as opposed to I want to be healthy, then you know how to sell the Bingo. product. Bingo, that's what this is all about. So first of all, you want to find out, do people actually even care about this or not? Now with weight loss, they do care. They will talk about it. And, and if you are trying to lose weight, you're looking at your body every single day of your life. However, the next question is, do they care enough to pay? Okay, this is really, really important. There's a lot of things people claim they care about, but when it comes to paying for it, they won't pay a cent. Right. And I think I think this is the biggest hurdle an entrepreneur has to get over. He'll inter he or she will interview hundreds of potential customers. They'll all say, yeah, I'd pay for that. And then they build the product and then nobody pays for it. Yeah, it's it's one of the biggest tragedies. And I want to make sure that nobody who's ever listened to you or me ever goes through that. Um, we had this happen in our business. So back in the day, I had to find health insurance. This is years ago. And um, as an entrepreneur, I didn't have some HMO or something. And I, I ended up spending quite a few months and it was really tough to understand the health insurance market. And I said, look, if I'm finding this tough, then I know a lot of other people are. So I did a really preliminary amount of customer research. I asked some friends, do you find this difficult? They're like, yeah, I hate, I hate health insurance. And I said, Eureka, I have struck gold. And I went off and created this product, this health insurance product. It was a great product on how to find the best health insurance and save money and stuff. And then we tested it. We beta tested it before we launched. And at this point, we actually charged $50 for the beta test. Like almost nobody paid. The very same people who said, I hate my health insurance. I would do anything. Please create this. They wouldn't sign up. You know what they said? They said, uh... Yeah, I, this this will definitely help some people. You should share it with them. And I was like, I'm trying to share it with you. Other people were like, oh, um, I'm really busy right now, but this is good to know. I'll, I'll file it away for later. And there is no heartbreak like having gone and spent a year building something that they told you they wanted and that they don't buy. We killed that product. We never released it to the public. We never will. But how will you ever know then what somebody's willing to pay for? There's a simple, we call it a green light benchmark. Um, a green light benchmark means you've hit the number, check the box, move on to the next step. That's one of the differences uh, that we teach in our ZTL zero to launch product, which is 
how do you know you're ready to go on to the next step? How do you know you're ready to start building this product or selling this product? Or how, what is your conversion rate that you should be targeting? The way you know is you're doing customer research, right? So back to the weight loss person. And you're saying, tell me about this. They're telling you, oh, you know, I've been struggling with my weight for years. And you ask them like, what have you tried? What's worked? What would it mean to you if you were able to lose weight? It's a really powerful question. And then you say, then you get a little skeptical because you don't want to believe everything somebody says. So I would say, you know, I'm curious. You mentioned that this is a huge priority. You mentioned this is something you've struggled with for a long time. There are a lot of great weight loss products out there. You know, why haven't you tried them? Or can you talk me through that? Now, notice what I just did there. I was very soft. I wasn't accusatory. But I want to know, are these people just complaining like those health insurance people? It's easy to complain about health insurance. Or do they actually want to pay for a solution? The way you know is when at least 10 people say, hell yes, please take my money. Please put me down on your list. Please, I will give you the money right now for when this product is created. When you have at least 10 who say exactly that, then you're ready to go on and create. So let me give you, let me give you an idea. Uh, and, and, and you've never done this, but someone could potentially do this, which is I, I, I have some ideas about weight loss. I go to 50 of my friends, whatever. They tell me why it's important to them that they lose weight. They, they uh, tell me why they haven't been able to do it before. So I'm able to now um, come up with language that would really inspire people to buy from me. And then 10 people, as you say, are willing to buy. What if, um, you, you don't recommend this, but what if I now say, okay, I'm going to launch this product. Here's a Kickstarter. Who will be, I'm going to give you a 20% discount if you sign up for my, uh, through my Kickstarter. Because then I know right away I have customers. Um, I'll tell you what I like about that. And I'll tell you what I don't like about that. What I like is you're continuing the momentum. You're mm -hmm. always moving forward. Uh, in business, you're going to sometimes just get stuck and get paralyzed. And uh, something I learned when I went through a uh, uh, defensive driving course, the instructor was a Secret Service driving instructor. And they taught us something really interesting. They said, when you're a normal civilian driver and something crazy happens on the freeway, what's your first inclination? Slam on the brakes. They said, when you are a like a military driver and something crazy happens, you do the opposite. You slam on the accelerator and get out of there. You need to always keep moving because the minute you stop, they shoot the driver and then the principal's dead. Mm -hmm. So in business, what I really like about what you said is you always keep moving. What I don't love or what I would suggest maybe reconsidering is um, you could do it on Kickstarter, but now you're not building your own asset of your own email list, which is something, as you know, is incredibly valuable. The other thing is you don't need to give discounts. Too often people lean on the crutch of discounts. Um, if people truly, really and truly want something, they will pay and they will happily pay. But those are minor details. Those are minor yeah. because some businesses do operate yeah. off discounts. Some don't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So overall, I, I would say I... 90% love that you're just keeping moving forward. I think the keeping momentum thing is interesting for any skill learning. So don't stop learning a skill that you love or, or doing something you love. Yeah, there's a, there's a phrase I have. Um, and if you Google, I wrote an article on failure expectation. And I think it's always important to already predict failure when you're starting something. Like 
I'm going to fail. So when that happens, what am I going to do next? I'll give you an example. When I was applying to a bunch of colleges in high school, um, I already anticipated that I would not get in. Okay. I hoped I would, but I planned for if I wouldn't. And what I had done is I had a plan B. Plan B was while those applications were out, I had gotten a little bit of press in the Sacramento Bee. I had written some random stuff here and there, and I had collected those clippings. And if they rejected me, I was going to send it back with these new clippings and these new updates and this new recommendation from a different teacher, and I was going to appeal it. Okay. That is, is appeal. Are appeals done? And yeah, they hardly ever work. But why not? Like I'm a right. college, I'm a high school kid. I, all I have is time in the world. Right. So what do I care? And and it's so funny. So I ended up applying to like 65 scholarships, and I, I ended up paying my way through scholarships through undergrad and grad school at Stanford. And there's a some article I read once where somebody taught. I, I actually wrote out the system I used to find these scholarships. Oh my god, this is a course. <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem is. I shared it, but I would rather just share it for free right. because people who are getting scholarships don't want to pay. Right? right. Very important point, by the way. Uh, if your market can't pay, you have a bad market. So if your market can't pay for one thing, they're probably not going to pay for yours to figure out how to not pay for the other thing. Yeah, exactly. And I made that no, mistake. Nothing wrong with that, that, that market, by the way. It's just not probably the ideal market to build wealth yeah, around. Yeah, this is, it's the difference between having a hobby and having a business. If you have uh, like a high school kid and they need help with their application or something like that, like I could help them. That's a hobby. And I would be happy to do it out of the goodness of my heart. Uh, but I would never start a business around that because they don't have the money. Um, and that's fine. It's just, that's not a business. So I wrote about this scholarship system that I sort of built. And there was a comment somewhere online where somebody said, hey, uh, I'm looking for scholarship help. Can anyone suggest how to do it? And somebody said, well, if you want to do what Ramit did, here's his system, but it seems like a lot of work. And I was like, yeah, it is a lot of work. Paid That's how I paid, paid for five years of Stanford. And it just like so laughable. Like what else does a high school kid have to do? They have nothing else except time. So I would spend every last minute doing this. It, it, like there, there was a great interview with the Navy SEAL where he said, uh, when other people go to training and they run an extra mile or they run 10 miles, they get more tired. They lose energy. For every extra mile I run, I get more energy. And I think you can reframe things in such a radical way that for me, spending more time on my scholarship applications actually gave me more energy. I think, you know, again, when it's something you're really, either you love or you're really motivated by, like you're really motivated to pay for your college education, I find for me when I'm in that state, uh, I feel like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable, which means I have to do it. Love it. So particularly if, if it's something I, if it's, if it's in under the umbrella of something I love or need to do. Like so stand-up comedy, for example. Yeah, so stand-up, if something, if somebody says, hey, can you do a half hour on this one lineup where all these pros are going to be judging you? That would be the scariest thing possible. But if someone said that to me, I would be like, okay, now I have to do that. I don't want to do it. I have to do that. I really love that. I think that idea of most people run away from the fire, but a trained personnel are going to run into the fire and they're going to look for way, they're going to look for people to save and they're going to embrace that uncertainty. That is such a powerful reframe of life. So, 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 okay. So now 
Um, let's say that the diet person has figured out the reasons why all their closest friends want to lose their diet. They figured out, oh, this is something, if I have something unique, somebody might pay for it. What do they do now? Okay, so now they've gotten 10 people who have said, yes, I'm in. Like, when you create it, I will pay. In fact, five of them gave them a down payment of 20 bucks or they just gave them the full fee, 50 bucks, let's say, okay? At this point, price does not really matter. You don't need to optimize your pricing. I recommend a $50 product because $50 is simple. Uh, you can create a solid ebook and sell it for $50. You can create some videos, but you don't, building a $500 or $2,000 product is much different. It's much also, more complex. Also, I want to add, if you sell a thousand of a $50 product, which is $50,000, several things have happened. One is you're not going to pay the same kind of taxes that someone making 50,000 in income makes. It's the equivalent of making probably 70 or $80,000. Cause you'll have all the ta- tax write-offs of the expenses of building the course and so on. And, all the other things that don't that get taken out in a job, you won't get taken out of your income. The other thing is, which you address in your move very well, and it was the first time I saw it addressed in, in this way, uh, Mc, you, you point out McDonald's has a supersize me option. Yeah. You can always, once you have $50,000 worth of customers, you could figure out a supersize me option, and now you actually are making seventy or $80,000 off that initial base. So, and, you know, there's that notion of, if you have a thousand true customers, you're you're in business for life. So as the Kevin Kelly uh, yeah. maxim. So okay, now you have you, you've sold a couple, you've sold twenty for fifty dollars, and now you start getting your asset, what you call your assets together. What's that? Yes, now you have an asset, and now you're in business. Now you can really do some great stuff. So the most important thing you have is you have identified a solution for a market that will pay. That is really important because if you had created uh, the health insurance product, it might be a great product, but the market will never pay. So you've created something. For an information product. By the way, the market would pay for that, a free website, comparison shopping. There's plenty of sites like that up there on the internet. That's what you were really competing with with that product. That is correct. And it just, it wasn't the right product market fit. So once you have this, just like when I created that video that I thought was good, but then I got some market intelligence that told me it actually wasn't good. You're going to learn a lot of things. You're going to learn um, a certain amount of people are going to refund from your product. So you're going to want to figure out why. And the simplest way to do that is to email them and say, hey, I noticed you refunded. That's totally fine. Um, Please keep the ebook with my compliments, but I'd love to hear two or three things that I could do to make it better next time. And there is a downsell option, which is once somebody refunds, I understand you refund, how about uh, my $3 special report? Uh, uh, you, you keep all the materials, but you also might want to buy my $3 special report, just uh, five dinners, recipes you could do to lose weight or whatever. There you go. Another thing that you can do is to email the people who did buy. And my favorite question to ask them is, what convinced you to buy? Notice the wording is very, very deliberate. I'm big on copywriting. I have an entire copywriting course and um, I've spent years really learning the craft of copywriting. By the way, I could tell that in the book, Your Move, because the, that just that notion of asking people, you know, why is this important to you? That leads straight into uh, copy. Yeah. Learning how to ask questions in a way that is not feeling like an interrogation but also gets you really honest answers. That's We put a lot of that in the book. And, and, and also it's really important to, to understand their motivation and how it intersects with 
Ramit's motivation if you're the one selling or whoever is the one selling? Like, why did you want to create a product about personal finance or earn $1,000 more or earn $50,000 more? You have your own motivations and they're going to intersect with the readers. And that's where copywriting really shines. It makes you likable, which is mm -hmm. the first rule of copywriting. It, it shows social proof because you showed how you got through something. And then you start to get into, you know, what they need. I easily think copywriting is one of the top three skills that anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur should learn. By, by the way, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. Have I officially recommended your copywriting course? Have you done it? Lately? I don't know, but if, I mean, copywriting is such a valuable, let me just, yeah. just say flat up front, the copywriting is a valuable skill. Like Huge. you just said, particularly in today's day and age where you're competing against Donald Trump's tweets, uh, 50 new shows a week from Netflix, uh, blogs, you know, YouTube videos, twitch.tv and so on. <laughs> copywriting is an important skill. Yeah. It sets you apart. It builds a relationship and it scales. That's amazing. So copy that I wrote in 2010 is still generating substantial business. It's still building a connection with people, which is awesome. It's yeah. like an ongoing stream of amazing customers who then get to uh, experience that, that some of my best stuff and then they get to experience some of my new stuff, which is like, it's perfect. So, so, so I just want to give somebody a business idea right off the top, just based on this. Go to your local dentist and say, you'll create an email list for them and then you'll write copy for them that will add to their revenues and you'll do it for a small fee and you do it once and you demonstrate how much more revenue you generated for them. Now there's 600,000 dentists in the, in the US. You have a, a complete dental email slash copywriting package. This is how copywriting scales and you could sell it to every dentist in America. That's a million dollar idea right there. It's uh, right there. So just to give you a couple of examples, how you can take a simple idea and scale them to a million dollars. I'll give you a couple simple ones. Um, one is, let's say you're a personal trainer. Okay, I, I don't know. I'm in this fitness thing, but let's just say you're a personal trainer. So I have a personal trainer and let's say I go four times a week and it's $100 per session, okay? So the guy's making 400 bucks from me uh, times four weeks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But think about all the revenue he's leaving on the table. What are some, now that he has a customer, whether it's with my weight loss ebook or as a personal trainer, your customers want more. So what would a customer want after they've got the personal training? Well, maybe they want help with their diet. Okay, so what could you offer? You could offer them an ebook. You could offer them a personal one-time consultation. You could offer them, you could even partner with a chef and offer them food delivery and take 10 or 15% right there as a fee. You could go further. You could do a summit once a year where you, you know, 20 people come in at once and you teach them some new skill or advanced techniques. There's a million different ways. And I have the math somewhere. It might be in the ebook or somewhere else where we show how the average client, you know, could go from being worth, let's say $10,000 a year to like $90,000 a year. That is, that's, that's extremely important. So if someone's in a position, once, once someone builds their assets and gets their first customers, the foot is in the door. And it's not about making more money from the customers. It's about everything you just mentioned is the value first. Like they're not going to pay you unless you're providing huge value. Yeah. So, so coming up with more assets means coming up with more uh, value for these customers that they're willing to pay for. And by the way, it takes you time and money so that you have to charge them. Exactly. And 
you should not, first of all, people are not stupid. They're not going to trip and fall and deposit their credit card number into a form. People are very, very smart and sophisticated online. Second is just think about brands that you love and trust. Like I wear Lululemon when I work out. I buy almost all Lululemon. So if they come out with something new, I'm like, yeah, I want to know about it. I signed up to their email list. I go in their stores. I'm a Lulu fan. Uh, Ugh, I hate Lululemon. I just have to tell you. Why? I just think that they're fat. They're like so tight. Like James, ugh. what's wrong with you? Uh, what do you wear? Uh, you better I don't not even say know. Nike. I'm, I, I get these T-shirts in Dwayne Reed. Okay, like three a pack of three for anyone, ten dollars. Anyone who's <laughs> listening, let's just. The, the, I have a hole in my pants, so I don't know how long <laughs> I've had these pants. Speaking of, you know what? Let me give you another example with clothing. So I've been to clothing stores where the salesperson. Um, they say like, would you like to sign up for our newsletter? And some of these clothing stores are, you know, more inexpensive. Some of them are way more expensive and you actually get like a salesperson who helps you and stuff. And I'm like, man, if I was one of these salespeople, the amount of money I could make from better customer service would be staggering. So let me share a couple of ideas and you can use these for your business. So the salesperson I know at one of these high-end stores, um, I never hear from them. Never. What they should be doing is saying, hey, Ramit, we have some new items that are coming in stock. Can I pull a couple for you and I'll put them aside if you want to come in? And I've seen clothing salespeople, good clothing salespeople do that. I've seen them do that. Exactly. The next thing they can do is, and this is a little bit deeper of a relationship, is to say, hey, Ramit, you bought these five items, two sweaters, two pants, and a shirt. I put together seven different styles so here are some photos I attached of ways that you can style these. And so now their emails are adding real value to my life, right? I'm getting cool styling ideas. And then they follow up a week later. Hey, Ramit, there's a new item in here. I styled it. It's a new coat that you could wear over your outfit. If you're interested, why don't you come in? Oh, by the way, the coat costs you know a lot of money. But if I see that and I love the way it looks, I'm there. I am a high value client to this salesperson. They should be emailing me at least once a week, minimum, with ideas, suggestions, letting me know about Mm, new product. mm. The key thing here is people want to hear from you if they are in your target market and you're good. Right. So I email a lot and people love it. So so that's that's extremely valuable. So so okay, I've I've made Let's say I have the diet thing. I wrote down what I do for my diet. I wrote down some recipes. I made some videos. I did some inspirational stuff. I've now got like, not necessarily a course, but a special report at least. Mm-hmm. And I'm selling it for 50 bucks to my friends. Mm-hmm. Now what do I do? Okay, so now you now you have uh, two options really. One is to get more traffic, which means more subscribers, which means more sales. The other thing is to work on the back end of your business, which means creating more products. Now, what I would recommend at this stage is the first time you launch a product, you're going to learn, oh, some of this stuff isn't as good as I thought, or I got a refund rate's a little too high. So fix that stuff up. I believe in building the fundamentals right. By the way, this takes six months to a year. Yeah. There's no fooling around. You're not going to do it tomorrow. Yes. But if you want to do something tomorrow, you can which is I can go to 10 of my best friends and I could say, I'm going to give you the 10 points I did to lose weight. Will you pay me 10 bucks for it? So if you want to start a business tomorrow and call yourself an entrepreneur, do that just to get the feeling and get that rush. But now the six to 12 months of work has to begin. It takes a lot of work. And I think everyone should appreciate that you're telling them the truth about it. 
because it's really easy to lie and say, oh, you can make a million dollars in two months. No, you can't. This is really hard stuff. But it's when, really you, hard. when you get it right, it can scale massively. Gosh, there's almost a podcast that that is just about this, which is that I think within three to five years, you could definitely build a good scalable business that is beyond your wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. But I think it takes 15 to 20 years to build, to keep doing this, to build, oh my gosh, I have all the wealth I could possibly have imagined. Yeah. And 15 years might be, might it, it might be a minimum, it might not, it just depends on the person. And it doesn't mean that, oh, you should struggle for 15 years. I just said between three and five years, you'll have a business where it's beyond your wildest dreams. But, uh, it's a process. It's a long process. You and I, I. I'll bring it back to comedy. Louis C.K. says Louis C.K. is the most famous and probably wealthiest now comedian in the world. He fills up Madison Square Garden five nights in a row, which is like a million bucks a night or more. Um, he nobody knew him for twenty eight years, and then people started to know him. Totally. So it's now that doesn't mean he failed for twenty eight years. He was head writer for Conan, Dana Carvey, Chris Rock. He made movies. He made TV shows. Boom, 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 boom. He had successes along the way. He was making a living every single year. But he he now says at year 28 is when, boom, he was quote unquote successful. Yeah. So there's there's different levels of success in building a business. That, that idea of overnight success is really seductive. And uh, I remember when I was starting out, um, you know those you know what process maps are? Those graphics, they look like satellites and somebody will process map out their business. So it's like, oh, in my business, I have like seven divisions, customer service and marketing and this. And then under customer service, there's all these sub satellites. And I remember looking at somebody's business and it was so complex that I was like, there's no way I will ever, I can't even understand what half of this stuff is, much less build something like this. And then about two or three years later, my business had actually eclipsed that business. And it wasn't like I um, just like woke up and had this strike of genius. It was like slogging it day in and day out. But I really love your point. You don't have to hate it. When I say slog, that's probably not even the right word. I was just going to work. Yeah, I was like doing my thing. I actually years, loved it. Six years ago, you were making a living on your business. Yeah. Now you're simply doing much better. Exactly. And I don't... I don't want uh, people to think that you have to... Oh, oh, did he just say we, we're we not limited on time, right? You can come in. We're keeping it all live. Yeah, you guys, I have a session at 11 coming up, so we need to wrap up. Okay. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Can, can they wait 10 more minutes? Like 10, 10? Okay, okay. All right, we'll wrap it up. Okay. Okay. Then you know what we'll do? I have an idea. Okay, good. We'll... we'll um, can you come back next week and we'll do yeah, a part two? of course. Okay. That'd be awesome. So I just want to say... Um, part one has been all about finding your idea and taking that first step towards starting the business and the psychology of starting the business and a little bit of the psychology of failure because that's really important. You talk about that in your move quite a bit or you talk about it in one of your blog posts. I, I get confused sometimes between the two. But what is step number two? Step number two is to put the pedal to the metal. Start to scale a little bit. So you have a product, you've fixed it up, You've gotten a f another 10, 20, 30 customers in there. You know this thing is solid. Now it's your joy and it's your obligation to get this to as many people as possible. And, and part of that, I will say, is giving for free. So that's why you give 98% of your content away for free. Part of that is building an email list. And we'll discuss that 
next time. This is not like a course or anything. We'll have a fun podcast. Uh, uh, what do you think of this idea, Rami, by the way? I want to, I've been doing one a week of my podcast. I want to release five a week or maybe eight a week. Love it. Yeah, because then I think I can just talk about, like, like I've been avoiding the business category because I only have one a week. So I'd rather talk to Tony Hawk than like talk about business. But if I'm doing like eight a week, I could, or five a week even, I can do one a week on business because I love this stuff too. I think people should get out of the cubicle and start making money. But I wanna, I wanna challenge you on one little thing. The weight loss category, I admit it's a huge category, but it's a huge category because there's a lot of mo- people paying money for it. What if I love golf and teaching golf? Golf is a massive opportunity and it's it's actually is it great. Is scalable? Like rather yes. than giving golf lessons? Yes, because not only is golf a big thing that people want and desire is number one, the people who are in the golf category actually have the ability and willingness to pay. That's huge. Uh, that's good. And is there possible to create a scalable product on that? There are multiple million dollar products. So many you can't even count in the golf category. Okay, what's a category that people could love that they can't make money on? Oh, there's a ton. That, that's what we call a labor of love. And those are things like um, how to help nonprofits get more money. Well, nonprofits aren't really going to pay you for that. All right, so so let's eliminate all the people who can't pay. Yeah. like So people who want cheap health insurance, yep. they can't pay for an expensive product on health insurance. So they don't have the ability to pay. Then there's people who don't have the willingness to pay. So this is what we call the pay certainty technique. Well, let's say I love watching Netflix. Can I make an asset about that? That's what people will pay for? Well, they could pay because it would probably be pretty cheap, but will they pay for it? Probably not because there's just a ton of free material out there. So next time we'll talk about how to really identify all the skills you love and things you do to really narrow down on the products you would love to create. We've talked a little bit, a lot actually about how to create them. And then next time let's talk about how to scale them. And then I want to pitch ideas to you. Last idea I want to pitch to you, um, I'm going to start filming a show just just for fun. Uh, not for fun, actually. I have a production company behind it, but uh, it's called I Will Make You a Millionaire. I'm going to take six random people and give them six completely different strategies and I'll put them all on the path to making a millionaire and film every step of the way. Will you be like a celebrity coach on at least one of the episodes? Yes. And I have a lot to say about this, so I can't wait until next time. All right, good. Well, we'll see you next week. Thanks, James. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Before you go, I wanted to just say thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed this podcast on iTunes. I really love reading these and thought it would be fun to share yet another review. Bernardo Bernal said, we listen to your podcast religiously, condensed food for thought, and the formulas to access the best in life. My family in Italy and Spain listen to you as well. Muchas gracias, grazie mil. And Stan Dubin said, it's the questions he asks. Too many podcast hosts ask either vanilla questions of their guests or they ask the same ones over and over again. Very little digging, very little depth. James A. is different. Yes, he interrupts, I guess, a bit too many times, but I can live with it. Phew, good. I was worried he wouldn't be able to live with it. His ability to get in there and get several layers deep is worth five stars. So again, thank you for listening. Stan, thanks for that review. Bernardo, thanks for that review. Anna Scheinman, Andrew Roan, the Unicorn Queen, 
Soul Surf Recovery, and every other person out there who is listening and sharing. I really, really can't thank you enough for your ongoing support and reviews. Thanks. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.